0: All right, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, that's where we're at, Um, been with us any length of time, you know, we've been going through the book of Ephesians and um, it's typical for us as a church, we take books of the Bibles and we go through them and verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we let God speak to us what he has to say and lots of benefits to that. Um, If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand, we've got ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible, Bible. and um, we're going to be taking a look at this morning, chapter 4, Picking up around verse 25. Um, What I want to do this morning is I'll just read uh, a little passage that we'll be looking at, verse 25 down to verse 32, and then we'll pray, and then we'll begin to uh, uh, get to to work looking at what this passage has to say. Um, So why don't you follow along with me? We'll start by reading the passage. Verse 25 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity to the to the devil. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something of which to share with everyone who is in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for the building up and is fit for the occasion, that it may give grace to those. Who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed by the day of redemption. Let our bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So I'm going to pray, we'll work. God, we ask you right now that you'd help us to understand what your word has to say about this. And God, give us insight, give us wisdom. Speak to us, reveal to us, God, how that we can uh, not only be a community of people that have been healed and transformed and washed and cleansed and reconciled by you, back to you, but God, how we can then uh, be this community of people that demonstrates to this world around us what reconciliation looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what healing looks like, all of these things, Lord. So we ask that you'd help us uh, to unpack this and understand it, and we uh, pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, I want to start by a sentence that I had kind of written out. Um, It says basically this, that God's sword of healing brings transformation to and then through, and then dot, 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 we'll begin to unpack kind of what Paul has to say. So, um, what Paul is unpacking here in a lot of ways, verses 25 to the end of the chapter, is very straightforward. I mean, it's one of those passages, you know, sometimes you can read uh, portions of the Bible that are very complex and very, hard, Uh, it may use language, it may use concepts or idioms or metaphors that are foreign to us as Westerners, but very common, perhaps for a Middle Eastern uh, in the first century. Um, And so sometimes some passages require a lot of, you know, background discovery and commentaries and understanding the historical context. Other passages like this are pretty straightforward. I mean, uh, the idea of put away anger, uh, I think that's something that we get oftentimes, we understand that. Um, And so what Paul is going to basically begin to do is unpack for us some very practical, as in practice, uh, ways for us to begin to understand what the gospel does for us. One of the things that we've been saying from the very beginning is that uh, chapters 1 through 3 kind of lay out for us or outline for us the actions of a healing God. In other words, what God has done on our behalf to bring about reconciliation. Reconciliation, by the way, is another metaphorical way of describing healing, 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 Uh, is another way of saying salvation. So when Paul uses phrases like reconciliation or healing, uh, it's the same as salvation. It's the same as being saved. There's lots of different ways in which Paul uses that type of language. But the same idea basically gets carried throughout, that God uh, has done something on behalf of us, something we don't deserve, something we didn't earn, Something, a lot of ways, we weren't even really asking for. We weren't searching because we were ignorant. We didn't understand the the depth to our brokenness or the way to kind of put it in maybe a a Reformation-type language, the depth of our depravity, how depraved, how broken, how dysfunctional. Uh, If you want to put it in kind of therapeutic language, how dysfunctional we actually were, the way the Bible would describe it, how sinful we actually were. We weren't really aware of the depth of that. And yet God did something on our behalf to bring about healing. God did something on our behalf to bring us back to himself because we were distanced from him. The Bible says that our sins have actually separated us from him. And so uh, what the first three chapters really kind of lay out for us is that God did something on our behalf to bring about our healing, reconciliation, restoration, salvation. But the The story doesn't end right there. Chapter 3 is not the end or the conclusion of the book of Ephesians. Paul continues it. And the reason why Paul continues it, because Paul knows that salvation does not end with a subjective experience that you or I have with God. In a lot of ways, I think westernized, individualistic, uh, understanding of Christianity has been reduced to simply that. Pray a prayer. uh, Ask Jesus into your heart. Get salvation makes certain at the moment that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. And that's oftentimes to the extent that we carry out or bear to really deal with or wrestle with what salvation or Christianity is all about. And I would say that is more reflective of westernized uh, post-enlightenment thought than it is with regard to what the Bible actually teaches. That what the Bible teaches is that God, as a healing God, Comes into this world to do something with the brokenness that is residual or resident within us human beings, but he does that so that that becomes the beginning place whereby we, as renewed image bearers of God, then can begin to bring forth, bear forth God's healing all around us. That's on a horizontal level, and we've been saying this over the past several weeks. Uh, That the idea is, if you can think of it in three uh, different types of circles, the first circle is us as individuals and perhaps those that are within our family, think church family. The healing doesn't just begin right there. Oftentimes there's a lot of brokenness within churches. Some of us have maybe come from churches that are very dysfunctional, very broken. And let me me say this as a side note. In a lot of ways, what Paul is going to unpack for us now completely dispels any myths that you may have uh, assuming that the other church was somehow this paradigm of righteousness. I think there's a tendency for a lot of uh, uh, modern day Christians to think and even pray. I've been in prayer meetings before where they're like, Lord, help us to be like the first century church. We don't want to be like the first century church in a lot of the ways. I mean, there's some things that were really legit, there's some things that were like really dysfunctional. This is one of those passages that points out this is a church. Why is Paul telling them, stop being angry? Because they are angry. Why is Paul telling them to stop you know, living in deception? Because they are deceived. They are living in lies. They are lying to one another. Why is Paul telling them in other occasions, stop having sex with your, you know, everyone else in the church around you? Because they are. This was a broken, dysfunctional church. And yet God, through the apostle Paul, was trying to reveal the message that this God actually seeks to bring healing to individuals And then into these various circles. One of the circles obviously has to do with the church family. And another one has to do with what we would describe as neighbors. Neighbor can be anybody around you. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be the person that you work with. If you're a boss, it could be your employees. If you're just an employee, it could be your boss and other employees, co-workers that you work with. If you go to school, other uh, classmates, uh, wherever it is, these would be classified as your neighbors. And oftentimes we like to let the gospel message, we're like, okay, if God is going to begin to want to do something with my life, having to deal with how I treat other church members and how I treat neighbors, that's great. But it doesn't stop there because it actually begins to move and infiltrate, if you think of it that way, infiltrate, go beyond, into other areas, those areas that oftentimes we don't like to discuss or talk about, because it then begins to pour out into the final circle, which would be our enemies. People that we don't like, people that are contrary to us, people that we would describe as other, that are not like us, people that may even offend us, frustrate us, annoy us, get under our skin, people that may have even sinned against us, people that maybe we have sinned against and then therefore we have shoved them off into the sidelines, the gospel then begins to say, no, 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 if you understand the gospel, if you understand what this is about, it affects the way that you treat other church members, the way that you deal with your neighbors, and also it must include your enemies. What does it include with regard to the enemies? Well, healing. How is what Paul begins to unpack for us, that the gospel is intended to transform us and then to transform us and then we, as we go forth into this world, as we interact with others in this life around us, that healing of God then begins to pour forth into all these other circles and all these other relationships that we have. So this is what Paul is trying to say. This is where Paul's trying to go with all of this, that he has created a new humanity and new people that have been transformed, that have been healed, that have been set free and changed, that then go forth and demonstrate to bear testimony of this healing that God has begun through Jesus. Now, Paul's going to basically begin to go through and really kind of point out that this God's restorative healing brings, as I mentioned earlier on the slide, that God's transformative healing brings this transformation to and then through And he kind of points out about six different areas where this begins to happen. I'll label them all for you guys right now. We won't get through all of them. In fact, uh, Pastor James will be finishing up this little section uh, for us next week. Um, I'll kind of get it started. We'll be going to take a look at a handful of these things, and then James will actually finish it up. But I'll say them just so you can kind of get an idea as to where we're going. And each one of these kind of correspond to a passage. So, for example, verse 25, Paul is going to talk about Uh, that this restorative healing brings transformation first to our integrity. Our integrity, in other words, our honesty. Are we honest people? Um, Are we honest people? Do we live in deception? The idea is is that if the gospel has impacted us, it will impact the way that we deal with the truth. Are we honest? Are we integrous? Are we integrated people? That's where we get the word uh, integrity from. The second thing we'll take a look at is it affects our emotions. How we handle, how we harness, how we control things like our temper, anger. Are we controlled by anger or do we control our anger? This is something that Paul addresses. The gospel begins to transform it and change it. Another one, third one, is our work. Is that Paul is going to basically describe certain vices or certain areas that may be out of whack, out of order, that are broken. And Paul, for example, in the topic of talking about work in verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal. Well, why is the thief out there stealing? Well, the implication is that because he's lazy, he's not working, he needs money, so he goes out and steals. And so Paul's suggesting that rather than giving way to thievery, because actually stealing is not good, it breaks down society, it breaks down culture, if you have a next door neighbor, if someone in your family or somebody that you know is stealing from you, that breaks trust and therefore it makes people angry and sometimes anger left out of control can lead to all sorts of things like worse than unfriending on Facebook, it could actually lead to murder. And so all of these things Paul is saying that get a hold of these things because in, in the place of stealing, get a good job, work hard, be an honest person. Uh, So that, therefore, the money that you make, you can actually use that money to give away generously to those that don't have anything. So the idea is not just simply a list of um, things that you're to do, imperatives. The word there for that is an imperative, something that you're ordered to do. It's not just simply listing down, writing out all of the imperatives. Okay, stop stealing, stop lying, stop being angry. But basically, Paul turns it inside out and says, in, in the place of being angry, Do this. In the place of being lazy and having to steal because you don't want to go out and get a job, get a job and use the money that you have to be generous in the place of these things. So, in other words, the gospel doesn't just simply repair certain things. It then transforms you. So, again, like we've been kind of pointing out the past couple weeks, you're not just a nice person, you're a new person. You're not just a nice person, you're a new person. That's what the gospel begins to do. fourth one we'll take a look at are your words. This is the passage that oftentimes, I think, in a lot of ways, gets misquoted or mistranslated or interpreted. Uh, verse twenty-nine says, "Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth." Now, I got saved when I was a brand new, when I was uh, when I was a young uh, teen, mid-teen, I should say, sixteen, and I remember hearing that verse uh, by people older than me saying, "Well, what this verse means is don't use four-letter words." I was like, "Okay." So I I live with this theological presupposition that what this verse means is is don't don't cause and it can involve that but the idea behind it is not is is really don't let communication words come out of your mouth that actually are corrupting that bring destruction that bring wounding that bring hurt and pain to other people Now, saying a four-letter word to somebody in a particular context could be you know corrupting i mean smashing your finger when you're doing something and you accidentally slip a four letter word comes out of your mouth may not necessarily be corrupting it may kind of reveal more so what's inside your heart and sometimes what's inside our heart isn't always that good Uh, like myself it's not always good sometimes my words are not always good ask my wife but the point of the matter is is that it really more so has to do with our speech how we speak how we talk to others is it healing is it restorative does it bring life does it bring encouragement or is it bringing corruption and brokenness destruction Fifthly, our attitudes. Sixthly, our actions uh, towards others. And then ultimately really kind of the idea behind that is our relationships. We'll take a look at all those things. Because really, again, like I said, even though it's very self-explanatory and pretty straightforward, a lot of it just requires a little bit of unpacking and slowing down and listening to what it has to say and trying to understand what Paul is really trying to get at. So with that bit this morning, I want to just kind of focus on the first two and I'll let Pastor James kind of carry on the rest next week. So first of all, he's going to talk about uh, our integrity, how the gospel, first of all, transforms us personally in terms of our own integrity and then transforms us so then from our integrity, we operate from a different lifestyle or a different paradigm, if you think of it that way, that way. So verse 25 says this, put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are neighbors, uh, for we are members of one another. So one translation can kind of put it this way that having put off once for all the lie. So falsehood could also be in, uh, translated as the lie. But the way that this particular phrase is actually um, written in the original Greek uh, is in a tense that's called the eris. And what the aorist basically means, we don't actually have that same type of tense in the English, but it basically points to something that actually already happened. And what Paul is actually referring to, a lot of scholars believe is he ties this into the first, uh, for, to the verse, a uh, couple verses prior where he says, having put off the old man and put on the new man. I didn't really mention this last week, but the idea that Paul is saying here is that the action of putting off the old person, putting on a new person, was something that has already actually happened. So let me put it this way if you're a Christian, a Christian is somebody that has put off the old lifestyle and has put on a new lifestyle. This is one of the reasons why, if you claim to be a Christian, that, yes, change of life ought to follow. In other words, your morality, the way that you think, your ethics, the way that you work, the way that you deal with other people, the way that you treat other people, that ought to begin to change. And so, for example, you know, we can really look at our lives and think, well, I don't really know if I'm really changing that much. Well, for one, we've kind of said this before, that you and I are not very equipped or not really good at being able to distinguish whether or not how much we're actually growing. Any more than a child can actually determine how tall they're getting, right? Without, you know, going into the closet and, you know, having mom gauge them. I remember one of when, here's a little like father story. I remember one times when my kids were young, they would go into the closet and they would kind of put the mark up there. My kids never got it right, you know, because they would like put the like little red scratch up on the door, and, and it's always like three inches taller. And they're like, "Look how tall I am." And you're like, "No, actually, you got that all wrong." Because one, when you do it, your finger's like at an angle like that. You need to go straight. Anyways, um, we are not good at gauging how much we really grow, so we need other people to gauge that for us. It's why we need to be in relationships. It's why we need to not be anonymous. A lot of you, a lot of us in this room maybe are not growing the way we ought to be growing in our walk, in our faith with Christ is because we've chosen to be anonymous. We've chosen to just simply go to church Uh, to participate in a sermon or a message or maybe sing a song or to go to church on Sunday morning. And that's the extent to which we have actually really delved into this thing called the body of Christ or Christianity. And so so for the most part, we are anonymous people claiming to have a relationship with God. But in reality, we're not really growing. We're not maturing. Uh, Because we are not subjecting ourselves to one another to actually be inspected. And so the point of the matter is, is, we can't always tell how we're growing based upon ourselves. That's why we need other people to look at us and say, you are actually growing. So the point of the matter is that oftentimes, as we come to Christ, growth must be necessary. We're not always good at being able to determine how much we're really growing. So we need others to help gauge us, to help define how much we're growing. But the point that I'm making is that Growth must happen. Growth must happen. It's part of what it means to be in Christ. Um, It may be slow growth, but growth must happen. So one of the things that Paul is saying is that our integrity, the way that we treat with, the way that we deal with truth matters. And the way that Paul describes this is that the action of being in Christ is that of taking off an old life, kind of like clothing, and putting on new clothing, a new way of life. And this is what it means to pick up your cross to follow Jesus. And as you do that, your life will continue to grow over a period of time and change and transform. This is really what Paul is saying. So one of those areas has to do with our integrity. So again, the concept that he points out here is having put away falsehood is really the idea of putting away the habit of lying. Now think about it this way. The idea of lying or falsehood is Paul says Once, without Christ, outside of being a Christian, not being a follower of Jesus, we lived as and by a way of life defined by deceit or lying. Let let me give you an example of this. So think about it this way. Why do we, to some degree, we have to actually get to the the, the sin beneath the sin. Because a lot of times it's easy for us to hear passages like this, and Paul says, stop lying, so they're going to stop lying. So you might hear this and be like, I'm going to be a good moral person because everybody knows that. Liars are not really nice people, and you can't trust them, and so therefore I'm going to try to be a person that tells the truth and doesn't lie. And the reality is, is that you don't really understand, perhaps, the reason why we lie. So let's, let's try to tackle the sin beneath the sin, or maybe a better analogy is to think let's tackle the root beneath the fruit, all right? So if, if lying is the fruit, all right, that's the low-picking fruit that, that comes from our lives, what's the root? What fuels that? Why do we lie? Does that make sense? Why do we lie? So let's try to tackle this. One of the reasons why we lie oftentimes is because we are very concerned about how others perceive us. It's really why we lie. We're really concerned to make certain that we project an image of ourselves that is agreeable and acceptable and likable by other people. You guys following me so long, so far? So what we do is we project images of ourselves. This is one of the crazy uh, cultural phenomena with regard to Facebook is we harness Facebook as like a publicity tool, right? You guys following me? So we put on Facebook our best photos of ourselves, and we delete photos, like if someone tags you and you got a piece of cake falling out of your mouth, you're like, that's it is. Get rid of that thing. You try to untag yourself in the photo because you don't want to be seen as somebody that is obviously constantly stuffing your face with gluten. And... So the point of the matter is, you want to be perceived as somebody that's healthy and is good and good-looking, whatever the case is. So anything that's going to tarnish or taint that, you, because those in your mind are are truths that need to be exposed or getting rid of because they make you look bad. So therefore, we do everything we can to project, to keep up an image about ourselves that is likable, agreeable with us. But we know, in reality, that is living in falsehood falsehood cuz we know in reality that's not the whole of us we know that beneath the photo that we posted of ourselves on facebook is a body for example that has scars and portions of the body that we wish we didn't really have or don't really like or maybe beneath your blonde hair is like a lot of nasty gray and you're like embarrassed stuff and so you bleach it or you stay, you know you do, you do all of these things to somehow make yourself look better than what you really are because you're ashamed of who you really are And so what happens is we live our lives with falsehoods, trying to convince everybody else that we're somebody than what we really are. That is a trap. That is what it means to be mastered by something. You're not actually free. And let me tell you how the gospel actually frees you from that. Because our greatest fears are actually based upon not just simply the truth of us getting sent out. It's what happens when others hear the truth about us that devastates us. It's not just simply the, that we're afraid about facts getting out about us. Is that we're afraid about what happens when the facts about us get out. That we will be viewed as a pervert. We will be viewed as a psychopath. We will be viewed as somebody that is not pretty. We will be viewed as somebody that's got a scar on your stomach and you don't want to be viewed as somebody that has a scar. Or you'll be viewed as somebody that has a large waist size. Or you'll be viewed as somebody at whatever fill in the blank. And the greatest fear is that if that truth gets out, then we're afraid of being rejected following so we lie we project alternative truth alternative reality to somehow cover up that and so we live our lives we exert our energy to somehow do everything we can to protect it and if anything ever comes in conflict with that image that we want to be projected or we want to be thought of then we will conveniently make up a counter story that counter story is what we call a lie And Paul says, having put off, shed lies, falsehood that were part of the old nature, put on this new nature. So how does the gospel freeze from that? Well, in short, the gospel message is the fact that you, as a human being, are far more flawed, far more sinful, far more wicked, far more deviant and defiled and dirty than we could ever even begin to cover and imagine it's the fact a lot of us struggle with that reality we don't like to think of it in that context because everything in our therapeutic uh, culture wants to tell us no no no! you are awesome like you you are so good and we 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 feed on that like that's what we feast our souls on but the reality is is that that's one of the reasons why we take showers because we're afraid of getting too smelly or it's one of the reasons why we work out is because we're afraid of getting a little bit too overweight. It's one of the reasons why you know some spend a lot of time on makeup, because we're a little bit afraid about going out, because our eyes don't look the way they should be. And what we we want to do everything we can to keep the non-truth alive. And so but what the gospel goes on to say that in God's eyes, even though you are broken and defiled and ruined and bankrupt and the Bible's word for that is just sinful. You are more loved than you can ever even imagine. You are more accepted. So let me put it this way. The truth about you is out to heaven, to God, and yet he still sets his affection and love upon you. You know what that means? He doesn't reject you. He doesn't cast you out. He doesn't castigate you. He doesn't kick you to the curb, throw you under the bus. He welcomes you. He loves you. He invites you. This is what the gospel does. And so therefore, the habit, the pattern, the lifestyle of lying and keeping up those lies and protecting those lies and investing the energy uh, into those lies, maintaining them, becomes a non-issue once the gospel rearranges your heart. Does that make sense? And what Paul then goes on to say is that put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor for we are all members of one another. And the idea here is that now that Lies are not what control you. You're free. You're not mastered by the lies anymore. You don't have to wire your life and rig your life in such a way that you are absolutely 100% dependent upon lies to keep the game going. You're free from that now. That whole uh, infrastructure that you've built your life upon now has been proven as what it is. It's just vacuous. It's void. It doesn't help you. At some point, it breaks. It's gone, and now what's left is the foundation that even though you're broken, even though you're sinful, even though you're all of these things, you're loved by the only true opinion in all the universe that truly, finally, ultimately matters. That frees you. That frees you to be a different person. That frees you to be able to speak the truth in love, as Paul says earlier in chapter 4, I think it's uh, up a little bit around verse 15. He says that frees you actually to be able to speak the truth in love because the way that you can address and deal with other people now is not via this outfit of deception, but through truth and honesty and love. Because you're free. That's what the gospel does. It frees you to actually be able to deal with people in a truthful type of way. And the word integrity, by the way, is is kind of this idea of integrity. Uh, in integrus It's two things being brought together as one. It's what the idea is, integration, uh, integrity. See, most of our lives are lived in a disintegrous type of a way, meaning uh, it's like two cogs that are not working together. But what the gospel does is it frees us to actually come together so that everything is integrous, integrated. So the concept here is that rather than being like this cog that's constantly breaking and grinding so you are projecting image from the outside that you're not really who you are. And in the inside, what the gospel does is it basically brings these things together so that when someone comes to you and says, I heard that you really messed up, or I heard you are an alcoholic, I've heard you struggled with porn, or, I heard you had a divorce, or I heard you know, your wife bailed on you, I've heard all whatever, you can actually look them in the eyes and be like, it's true. It's true. God's welcomed me, he's washed me, he's cleansed me, he's transforming me. And that frees you to rather than hide from the truth, to actually let the truth envelop you in its light and let that become the path to transformation. Because at the end of the day, like I said earlier, and I keep reiterating because we keep needing to hear it, is that at the end of the day, the only opinion in the universe that really matters is God's. And God says, I accept you. I love you. And so therefore Paul says, put away falsehood. Let each of you speak truth to his neighbor. So Take a look at a couple passages real quick. You can open up to the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 16. Uh, It's an Old Testament passage, by the way, Um, and don't be ashamed. It's fine if you want to look up in your uh, 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 table contents. That's one of those passages you're like, I have no idea where Zechariah is. That's fine. Uh, I I realize we probably don't, doesn't get a lot of uh, traction, but that's fine. Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 16. Colossians, chapter 3, verse 9. You can uh, once you find Zechariah, put your finger there and then go back to Colossians chapter three, verse nine. Listen to these two verses. The first of which is Zechariah 8, 16. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and that make for peace. And so with the prophet Zechariah is basically saying, speaking to a nation, people of Israel, who were obviously accustomed to the typical habits that you and I are accustomed to, which is falsehood. We lie to each other. We don't speak truth to one another. We're afraid about what the truth is going to bring about. We're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid about being seen as a failure, or a flaw, uh, a, a, a person that's broken. And so the reality is, is that he's saying that, look, because God accepts you, be someone that speaks truth. Be someone that brings into the gates, the idea of a gate is, What comes into the city, what comes into the place of protection in which you dwell, in which you live, in which you flourish, let there be judgment and honesty within there, not deception, not lying. And he says, and to set your heart and your mind upon those things that actually make for peace. The idea here is that um, God actually cares about peace. He cares about bringing peace. The peace that God brings is a peace that's radically different than the peace that, say, for example, Caesar brought. Rome had their form of peace. It was called the Pax Romana. Romana. And it was a peace that came through Caesar conquering, oftentimes shedding blood of innocent people. But the peace that God comes and he brings is a peace that's radically different. It's a peace that comes whereby he himself was crushed for the enemies rather than him crushing the enemies. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So this is very similar. It's one of the reasons why, for example, we can know there's correlation between Colossians and Ephesians. We know that the authorship was obviously Paul because these same themes and same ideas basically get reiterated there. But that's what Paul is saying is that because you are a new person, if you're a Christian, because you are brand new in Christ, because God has redeemed you and welcomed you and loved you and uh, brought you near and drawn you to himself, You don't need to live in falsehoods and lies. Because look, at the end of the day, on a practical level, do you realize how absolutely exhausting living in lies are? It's an absolutely exhausting life to live. Because what happens is you invest all of your energy, all of your time, trying to make certain you never get caught. And if there's any inkling or any hint of disingenuous uh, reality coming out of who you are, You freak out, your world becomes or transforms into nothing but anxiety because it's an exhausting lifestyle. Can you imagine that energy being used and reinvested in loving other people and serving other people? But what happens is we don't. We are a broken community of people fixed on, fixated on trying to keep up the lie. And the gospel frees us because it brings this restorative healing and transformation to the area of our integrity and then through The area of our integrity, so that now we can then communicate to others how God sets us free. Second thing, we'll finish up on this particular section, is our emotions, where Paul says this be angry and do not sin. That, first of all, tells us there's a way to be angry and not sin. The fact of the matter is that oftentimes our sin is, or our anger is actually uh, not free of sin. Oftentimes it's, you know, filled with sin because our anger is actually, you know, not pure, not genuine. Um, The idea of anger is that we oftentimes hate things that we actually should love and love things that we actually should hate. And the concept here is that as broken human beings, we oftentimes reverse the order. We love things. We devote ourselves to things that are actually bad, not only for ourselves, but are actually demeaning and adding to the brokenness of this world. So again, you know, we oftentimes describe this and think of it this way. But uh, think in context of the sexual type of perversion that is within our culture and society today. There's a lot of love for pornography in our society. But what's oftentimes the underbelly of this, the dark side of this, is that what keeps that whole entire thing going in a lot of ways is uh, slavery people that are basically being abducted, people that are somehow forced into these types of scenarios just so that they can keep the industry going. So what happens is, for example, someone who is engaging in something because their soul loves to view naked women or naked men on a video screen or on a computer screen, that that love is actually adding deep pain and brokenness to the rest of this world. It's because we love that which we should actually hate and hate that which we should actually love. Our ability to understand what truly should be hated is skewed, it's broken. And yet the gospel reorients that so that we then begin to have God's heart and begin to hate the things. There are certain things, I think you would all agree, that we should hate. We should hate um, sex traffickers or sex trafficking, right? Uh, we should hate the fact that there are people that are basically being misused and abused. We should hate religious extremism. We should hate it when people do things in the name of God or even in the name of Yahweh or in the name of Christ that are actually demeaning and destructive and adding to the pain and the brokenness within this world. We should hate these things. These are legitimate things to actually hate. God bless you. The point of the matter is, is that we oftentimes misappropriate how we should have emotions for these things. But what Paul is saying is that uh, be angry and don't sin. So in other words, there's a way to have anger that is actually not sin-filled. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He's actually quoting from Psalm 4, uh, four, and this is oftentimes the concept of the sun going down at nighttime. Uh, it's the ending of a day, but the beginning of a brand new day. And, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, if you were out in the field working, for example, um, God actually ordered the people that were running the entire operation to make sure that you pay all of your employees at before sundown, to make certain that, you know, you don't go into the next work day and you haven't paid them, which is kind of rad, because they didn't just give you a, a check that could potentially bounce, they actually just gave you cash every single day. How rad would that be to every single day go to your boss, be like, pay up, all right? Uh, that was a culture in society, at least uh, functionally the way it was supposed to work, but the point of the matter is is that uh, the sundown was a way of basically saying, hey, uh, here's the, you're in debt to somebody. Someone's in debt to you. Uh, that debt should not carry over into the next day. If they work for you, they deserve pay. Uh, if they've wronged you and you feel hurt, wounded, offended, uh, then don't carry that pain, that emotion, that pathos over to the next day. Deal with it before the sun goes down. I was kind of thinking about this the other day. That um, I have some friends; they've got younger kids, and one of the things that kind of fascinates me. I, I love watching young kids. Now that my kids are older now, and I, I can actually, I can actually watch young kids like battle it out and fight, and not get all emotional about it. Like, why are you guys messing around? Stop yelling at each other. Stop whacking your sister. And and actually, like like I can watch it with you know not being emotionally involved and just watch how kids uh, in, interact with each other. And so what I observed is that you had these two kids, and. It got to the point where they were literally just yelling at each other, screaming at each other, stop it, stop it. And they were screaming on the verge of going to blows. And all of a sudden, you know, the moms entered in. They're like, knock it off, stop it, speak nicely, speak kindly. I mean, we're talking there was nothing but intense emotion. Like, if you were to transpose that emotion that was between those two kids into two adults, like, and if you were to transpose that one step further, that emotion into, like, rocket fuel... That, there was enough emotion to send both people into separate orbits to where they would never be involved in each other's lives ever again. Like seriously, think about it this way. If, if you or your boss or you or your husband or your spouse got into such heated, literally yelling at each other, at the top of your lungs, about to go to blows, that would be enough to say, I'm done with this forever. Mom's like, knock it off. And they're like, okay. And they're like... Giving hugs and are, you know, just having fun again. It's like, I'm like, that does not happen in the adult world. There's something about kids that have the ability to not let anger ultimately control them, master them. One of the reasons I think Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you can't, the, the kingdom of God will not make sense to you. And the point is, is that. Don't be mastered. If you are people that have been transformed by the gospel, don't be mastered by anger. The archetypical story of this is in the book of Genesis chapter 4 where it's Cain and Abel. Cain obviously brings an offering to God. He's the, these are both sons of Adam and Eve. Cain brings an offering to God and his offering is not accepted. Abel brings an offering to God. His offering is accepted. and It says that Cain was very angry in his heart towards his brother. And that anger actually set in motion a trajectory that led to the murder of Abel. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, be careful, if there is anger in your heart, you control that, otherwise at some point you will lose control and it will control you and it will have devastating, destructive, corrupting consequences on your life, over your life. It's one of the reasons why Jesus would say, uh, don't have anger in your heart because hating your brother is equivalent or on par with murdering them. Because if you think of it this way, hatred is really this root that brings forth the fruit of, of murder. Now, a lot of us in this room might look at our lives and be like, I'll never murder somebody. I may think about it or dream about it or fantasize about it, but I may never actually carry it out. But the point of the matter is, is that hatred oftentimes can come out in other various forms. Like not returning a phone call, even though they may have reached out to you, even though they've asked you repeated times, hey, would you be willing to meet for coffee? And you're like, no. That is a form of punishing. It's a form of letting your anger. Now, obviously, in some cases, some circumstances, you got to say no because of the circumstances. But the point of the matter is uh, we oftentimes use anger. Anger is something that controls us and uses us to make decisions that lead to continue to facilitate the brokenness within this world and keep relationships broken and non-repairable. And what Jesus is up to is he's trying to reconcile and bring repair and bring restoration. And the gospel does that. And the greatest example of that is God reaching out to you who are once an enemy of his. And the picture is, and I'll finish with this thought, is in the book of Exodus, God actually defines and describes himself to Moses. And he says, Moses, here's what I'm like. Um, uh, this is this massive description of who God is. But one of the descriptions that God uses of himself, he says, the Lord is long-suffering, slow to anger. It's this great image. In fact, um, the the actual root word that's used there of slow to anger is a word that basically speaks of something that's long or extended. It could be used of the length of a wing on a bird. Um, One uh, Old Testament scholar actually described that particular word as basically describing a long snout and a long nose. And and, and the imagery is that, uh, uh, from a metaphorical image, is that if God, for example, in his anger, so oftentimes anger is associated to or likened to, think of like a dragon that's breathing fire. You're so angry, you're breathing fire, God breathes fire, but he's got such a long nose that by the time the fire gets to the end of his nostrils, it goes out. God is 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 slow to anger. We are oftentimes dominated and controlled and mastered by it. And what Paul's saying is that because you have shed, put off this old life that was mastered by anger, mastered by deception, put on this new life. That is bringing about restoration and healing, not lying, not duplicity, not projecting an image of who you want the whole world to be, but in reality, that's not who you are, you're just just a fake, you're a fraud, you're lying, and it takes a lot of energy to keep up that lie, and a lot of anxiety comes out of that because you're oftentimes living with this notion of fear that maybe you may be found out, maybe your deeds or misdeeds may actually once hit the spotlight and you are living in anxiety as a result of that. That is not freedom. That is actually slavery. That Jesus says, I want to free you. That's you today. I want to free you from that. And this is how great the gospel is. Why the gospel is good news is that Jesus comes and says, I will deliver you. I will set you free. And the way that he comes and the way he takes care of this is that he comes into this world. He makes his way ultimately to the cross. And throughout the entire thing, Jesus could have lied. I mean, think of it this. Pilate standing there with Jesus, like, who do you say that you are? You claim to be a king. Jesus, is like, he could, have, he could have said, I ain't a king. I'm just like a random peasant preacher that somehow got swept up in some crazy scandal with the Jewish leaders, and uh, can I go back to, you know, preaching? Jesus could have lied, but he didn't lie because he's God. He spoke truth. That truth led him to being crushed, not just randomly, but to be crushed for us because we have mismanaged the life that God's given us because the way the Bible describes it, we have sinned, we have broken relationship with God. And oftentimes we live in that fear. Of what happens if I'm found out? But look, somebody I got good news. You have been found out. In spite of you being found out by God, he still loves you, still calls you his own, still washes you, still draws you, still welcomes you to the table in spite of who you are. That truth can free you. That truth can change you. That truth can infuse you with healing and then make you into a healer. This is what the gospel does. We're going to finish, and we're going to sing. We'll respond. We have communion in the back. You have the team come on up, and then we're just going to respond because the gospel, when we hear it, should actually elicit a response. And response should just come naturally. Do we know this great God? And if we know what this great God has done for us, the response to this great God is affection. The response to this great God is love. For some of us, that response may be confession of sin. Maybe some of us here have never really truly confessed our sin to God. We've maybe lived with this understanding that maybe, yeah, God knows, and that might frighten you. But if that's you, I want to encourage you, don't be frightened anymore. Just confess it. Know that there's reprieve, there's forgiveness, there's washing, there's cleansing from this God to restore and renew you so that you don't have to continue to live with all this energy directed towards keeping up the fraud. That Jesus can bring wholeness and healing to your life. And this is why it's good news. It's really good news that you can be free. You can have life. And that freedom is not just simply freedom from a sentence. It includes that but it's freedom for living, freedom for life, freedom for joy, freedom for peace, freedom to live a life that is integrated, not like a body that has bones that are out of socket or out of joint and the pain that goes along with that, but having a life that is integrated. It doesn't mean it's pain-free, but it means that we have a life that now is truly free, truly free, even if perhaps to some degree maybe, be steeped in moments or episodes of pain. It's truly free. So I want to pray for us and then we'll sing. Why don't we all stand? If you're here and you got kiddos in the back, I try to encourage you to uh, make sure you pick them up around no later than twelve You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. That's fine. We have some people off to the side that want to pray for you. So if you're here and there are scenarios that are in your life right now that you feel bound by, feel as if you're mastered by and you want someone to pray for you, just go grab someone. I'm pray for you. The communion in the back. It reminds us of the fact that Jesus was crushed. He was broken. He was for us. But by partaking of that, we're partaking of that with a body, a family, a people that are broken in the process of being made whole. So eat the bread in a manner, the way Paul says, that's worthy. Recognize that part of coming to that table means you're coming to a family, and that family is filled with broken, dysfunctional people just like you that may have Offended or hurt or wounded or broken, you. But part of eating that bread in a worthy manner is a part of way as a way of saying, "I'm in this family, for better or for worse." To be part of the healing that has been showered, lavished upon you. So, God, thank you. Uh, we want to respond now in love and worship back to you.